I just returned, uh, not last week, but the week before from Southern California. Some of you knew that. And uh, I was in uh, Santa Monica, which is a very uh, beautiful uh, part of Southern California, maybe uh, one of the most beautiful parts. And as I was there, I was thinking of a Californian poet named Suzanne Loomis. And the poem is called Shangri-La, uh, Law, L-A, for Los Angeles. She is a Californian. And she writes about the comparison between uh, L.A. and New York, and it's a very humorous uh, poem. I, uh, I really enjoy it. She, uh, she is a Californian. She speaks about all of those stereotypes about Southern California. And as she is speaking to New Yorkers in her poem, she says it's true. She says it's true. Here we are all blonde, even in the dark, on Mondays or in slow traffic. Even in our off-guard moments, startled by a passerby, we are young. Here we are all privileged, even in our sleep at night, the maids hover like sweetly tranquilized angels over the glazed and enameled surfaces of things. This is L.A. to her. She wants everyone in New York to know it's true. L.A. is really like this. She says that when someone says, get real, she says it hurts people in L.A. Because they're always real. She says, we throw beach robes over our tans and cruise down the boulevard, tossing lifesavers into our mouths. So she says, New York, it's true that in the rest of the world, there's winter. But she says here, there isn't any. She says, you turn us over and you turn us upright and you see there's no snow. And I just love that picture. Everyone knows a snow globe. Turn it over as many times as you want. It doesn't snow here. It's true. Now, we know that the Christian life is actually very, very different than that. As we grow in friendships in the life of the church, we're willing to confess to one another that uh, no, life is not like a snow globe in which it doesn't snow. There's a lot of snow. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. Life is hard. Life is hard for me even as a Christian. Life is not Southern California. Now, we know that this is true. And the passage this morning is a passage that opens with an enormous number of questions. And I want you to be thinking about why there would be so many questions in this closing of Romans chapter 8. I want to suggest to you that there are so many questions because Paul knows that his audience is a destabilized audience. There are things about the gospel, they're Christians, that don't seem to comport very well with the things that they experience in life. Their life is hard. Remember chapter 8 follows chapter 7. There's not only uh, the possibility of persecution, or perhaps there is persecution. Paul's not direct about that, but he is direct in chapter 7 about indwelling sin. And I wonder if all of these question marks in the closing of Romans chapter 8 Seven of them in English. There's only five of the question marks uh, in the Greek text. And so sometimes, as Paul writes, he's uh, writing statements that while there isn't a question mark, it sure feels like there ought to be a question mark. That's what translators say. And all these questions are the kinds of questions that Paul is assuming they might be afraid to ask. Maybe there's a handful of Christians in this Roman congregation that feel as though it is hard to talk about their own struggles in the Christian life. They're afraid of persecution. They're afraid of the reality of their own struggles with sin. 
There are scared individuals in that Roman church. There are doubters in that Roman church. And I want to suggest to all of us that we know exactly what that's like. And sometimes, scared people, sometimes people who are suffering or who know that they are about to suffer are going to unleash a flurry of questions. Tell me all over again, who is this God? Who is this Jesus? What has he done again for me? And how can I believe that this is true? Tell me again. Well, we know that feeling. You know, no matter how difficult our life is as Christians, either externally, circumstances around us, or internally, circumstances within our hearts, the relationship that a Christian has with God, the strength of that relationship rests entirely with God. And that is how Paul closes Romans chapter 8. Now, this is a complex passage, and we need to map it out. And this is not perfect, but I'm going to suggest to you a way to outline uh, this uh, passage. Uh, And and the way I'd like for us to outline the passage is to outline according to uh, the time signatures, as it were, of the verbs, the the, the tenses of the verbs that we find. And so uh, when we do that, in verse 35, I think there's a division, but... When you look at your Bibles, there's not a break between 34 and 35, but I'm going to ask you to think that there is a break between 34 and 35. Because in 31 through 34, um, the uh, answers to the questions, a lot of question marks, but the answers to the questions that Paul poses are mostly about realities in the past that have implications for the present. So look at verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. That is something in the past. And look at verse 33. Uh, It is God who justifies. It looks like it's in the present, but really it's a past reality for those who profess faith in Jesus. And then look at verse 34. We have this combining. Christ Jesus is the one who died, the one who was raised. But then look, there's a statement about the present, the one who is at the right hand of God. And so verses 31 through 34, the answers are uh, about past events with present implications, but in verse 35 through 39, the answers seem to be more focused upon the present, upon future reality. So look at verse 35. Who will separate us? That's future. Who is it? Who will separate us? And then he says in verse 37, which is where we're driving at, uh, something about the present. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. That's in the present. But then look what happens in 38. We go to the future again. Uh, I am sure that neither death nor life will be able to separate us. He is sure of these things. And so the outline of the sermon is uh, an outline of uh, two parts. There is a past that secures my present as a Christian. Verses 31 through 34. There is a past that secures my present. And then from verses 30, verse 35 to 39, there is a present that guarantees my future. There's a present that guarantees my future. So first, 31 through 34 is a past that secures my present. Now look at Paul says in 31, what shall we say to these things? What is he talking about? What are these things? And, and he's, looking, he's looking back at what, he, what he's already said. He's looking at verses 29 through 30. In verse 29, uh, here are the things. You know, what shall we say about these things? Paul says in, in 29, uh, for those whom he foreknew, right, there's personal intimacy even before the foundations of the world, that, that God foreknew me even before I was born. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. 
Of course, I, I had to say yes to the gospel. But even as I say yes to the gospel, God was in charge even of that saying yes. He, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, Jesus' resurrection actually has secured my own resurrection. And Paul goes on, and those whom he predestined, he also called. You see, there's where you said yes to the gospel. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He declares them innocent. And those whom he justified, he also uh, glorified. The the glorification of the Christian is actually uh, somehow, it's already begun. And then Paul says in verse 31, uh, what shall we say to these things? And why do you think he's asking that question? What shall we say to these things? Well, first of all, these things that you've said, Paul, they are very challenging to grasp. Sometimes as Christians, we think that our objections are better than objections of the gospel in the ancient world, but they're not. Your objections to Jesus Christ are no better than objections that have come before you. And this uh, this uh, congregation in Rome, uh, they also find that verses 29 through 30, they're very hard to grasp. And so when Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Uh, you bet they're asking that. Tell us more about that, because frankly, Paul, that's very hard to believe. But there's something else as well. The setting of verses 29 through 30 is a setting in which the Roman Christians are actually suffering. They're marginalized as a people group, Christians in a pagan city of Rome. But not only are they marginalized as a people group, they are struggling with indwelling sin. And so, when Paul says in verses 29 through 30 that there is an extraordinary story of redemption that is above them, and before them and beyond them, you can bet they are going to ask, what is this about, Paul? Because there are people who are suffering. Now, Paul does this. Next, he goes in uh, just a a few uh, quick steps. He presents some very uh, negative questions, 31, 33, 34. They really are negative questions. Look what, look what he says. I mean, all of them, in one sense, they have the same answer. He says, uh, who is against us? There's actually no verb. He's just, he just says, who against us? And then he says, who bring charges? Verse 33. And then he says, who condemn? Verse 34. It, it's syncopated. It's short. It's almost like Paul's reading their minds. Because if I was sitting in the Roman Catholic Church and Paul says, "Uh, who's against us? I would raise my hands and I would say, "Um, how about 98% of this city? How about that? And when Paul says, who will bring charges? uh, People, again, are going to raise their hands and they're going to say, persecution's all over the place. You can bet charges will follow. Uh, This word for bringing charges in verse 33, we actually find it all over the book of Acts. Why? Well, because Christians were persecuted. And charges were brought before them. Who's against us? Paul, have a seat, let me tell you. Who brings charges? Paul, have a seat, let me tell you. And who condemns? And the response can be the same. Lots of people can raise their hands. Because some of them think that maybe even God will condemn them. Because they are a Romans chapter 7 people. They know that they're sinners. And they know that they're confessing the same sin over and over again. And they're hoping that this temptation to sin goes away. But it doesn't always. Who will condemn? 
it would actually be legitimate for folks in that church to think maybe God is going to condemn me because I finally done it this time. Now, isn't it remarkable that, that even a Christian can hear these three questions, who's against us, who brings charges, who condemns us, and can answer them rather rapidly, and I should say confidently. But Paul doesn't, uh, doesn't allow them to answer the questions that way. Paul actually gives them gospel answers to those questions. So going back then to verse 31, he's going to, to, to fold into our frame of reference the story of redemption. He is going to take my life experiences and he is going to inject into those life experiences a timeline that goes beyond my life and started before my life. And so in verse 31, when Paul asked who is against us, you, Christian, may want to answer very quickly, but Paul says this, God is for you. He didn't spare even his son. The, the, the highest cost of redemption in all the universe, the greatest cost, the cost of the only begotten Son of God, is the price for the highest sin in all the universe, Adam's rebellion against God. But what Paul says, before you rattle off an answer of who you think is against you, Paul says God is for you. He did not spare even his own son. And if he paid that price, what won't he do for you? And then he gives a better answer for the second question as well. Who will bring charges? And Paul says, God justified you. God has already called you innocent. Yes, indeed. Who will bring charges when God declares that you are innocent in Christ Jesus? And then in verse 34, who has condemned us? And Paul says that Christ has lived his life for you. That Jesus' timeline is your own timeline. He died, but that death has something to do with you. He was raised from the dead, and that resurrection has something to do with you. And he is now holding all authority, and his holding of all authority has something to do with you. And he is now, Paul says, interceding, speaking for you. Who has condemned indeed? Now, on the one hand, this is Christianity at its fundamentals, isn't it? But on the other hand, this is something that we need to remind one another of. Because this actually frames our lives in an entirely different way than we would otherwise frame our own lives. And as American Christians, we are very much interested in framing our own lives, our own identities, our own status, our own careers, you name it. We are self-made people. But Paul says that Christians are not self-made people. In fact, no one is a self-made person. You see, verses 28 through 30, it's almost too hard to believe. Even though I profess faith as a Christian, verses 28 through 30, it's just so hard to believe. I feel that persecution is coming. I feel that charges are coming. I feel that hostility to the church that I love is growing all around me. And not only that, I feel a tremendously weak and helpless, even as a mature Christian, a growing Christian, one who's been a Christian for a rather long time. 
And yet I still feel weak and helpless against my own sin and sometimes feel like I actually deserve God's condemnation. Verses 28 through 30 are so hard for me to believe. And then a flurry of questions just come leaping uh, out of my mouth. Uh, Paul, uh, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And Paul says that God meets us in that small view of our life story. In that tiny, fractional understanding of who I am as a Christian and as a person. God meets me with the story that is far larger, the story of my own redemption, that God, he is for me, that God, he has sacrificed his son for me, that there is nothing greater that God can do for me. He has done so much. That Jesus, his only begotten son, willingly, voluntarily died for me. And that God resurrected that son for me. And that son lives today, reigning over the entire universe for me. There is something, Christian, that has happened in the past that secures your present. No matter how difficult your life seems right now, externally, owing to circumstances, or internally, owing to things that you will share with virtually no one or no one at all. No matter how difficult, the relationship that you have with God, it's a relationship that rests entirely upon His strength. Now, there's a past that secures my present, verses 31 through 34. But there's also a present that guarantees my future. In another passage, this from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It's a passage that's appropriate right here because uh, the reality of living in a non-Southern California type of life struggling with uh, oppression, marginalization from culture, and then struggling uh, with my own sin. I know very well that the things that I see right now are in a mirror, dimly. This is a good passage to go to because I know that there will be a time uh, when I shall know fully as I have been fully known. Some of you have been to London, and the big uh, cathedral... Uh, in the center of London, St. Paul's uh, Cathedral is uh, uh, a uh, landmark that a lot of people know. There's a minister there in the late 19th century by the name of H.P. Lytton. Uh, Lytton was a beloved pastor there for some 20 years. St. Paul's is a uh, Church of England church. It's a Protestant church. Uh, and H.P. Uh, Lytton was a good pastor, uh, very well known, uh, good friends actually with the author Lewis Carroll. And he preached on this very passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. He preached on this passage in 1879. And as he opened his passage, he began with this story. It's a story about an army officer. He's very old, 70 years old, done fighting. That's behind him. 
soldier days uh, are not his present days. And uh, he returns to London from India. He uh, actually uh, fought in the uh, wars on the Indian subcontinent, uh, the uh, wars that England fought for crown rule. And he's seen a lot of battle. Uh, He's seen a lot of pain. And he's sitting amidst a group of uh, non-army Londoners, friends of his, And they can't get enough of his stories. Maybe some of you uh, have uh, recollections like this. And he is telling story after story, all sorts of uh, hairbreadth escapes, uh, near misses. Uh, There were a lot of wars. Uh, There were uh, a lot of skirmishes. Uh, He almost lost his life several times. I mean, real good, earthy, true stories about fighting a very long war. And he just presents story after story after story of near misses. And his audience is enwrapped. And then he pauses and he says this. Imagine this, uh, uh, H.P. Lytton saying this to uh, his congregation. Uh, this aged soldier, uh, he stops and he, pa- he pauses, and then he says this. He says, yes, but I expect to see something much more remarkable than anything I've been describing. Well, what he's been describing is how he's been saved from catastrophic events. And he says, I expect to see something much more remarkable than anything I've been describing. And then he says in a very low tone, he says, what I expect to see is the first five minutes after my own death. The first five minutes after his own death. That is going to be more remarkable than anything he's ever uh, seen in his life. The soldier is a Christian knows things about his life, and the things that he knows about his life, he knows from God's holy word, and he counts on them in the present. And even as H.P. Lytton shares a story of this uh, soldier, uh, Lytton sharing that that story about a soldier has made it into uh, books about uh, the preaching ministry. Just Lytton sharing the illustration makes it in the history books. His congregation was filled with confidence. All of those who uh, professed faith in Jesus Christ were being taught by this soldier, regardless of what you experience in this life, how remarkable will it be to see that great triumphant victory? Now, this man's exploits, he knew, pale in comparison to the exploits of someone else, and those are the exploits of God. This man had made it to age 70, lived a long, active life, had been preserved through all kinds of harm, but there is someone else who has saved him from a far larger enemy, and that someone else is God, and that's the soldier. This man's exploits pale in comparison to the exploits of God on his behalf. And look what Paul says in verse 35 of our passage. He says something about us that we may not be willing to admit. I'm sorry, this is verse 37. He says, you are more than conquerors. 
You know, in verse 35, he describes a scene of war very much like a scene of war. Tribulation, uh, every kind of trouble. Tribulation is a generic word. Uh, Every kind of trouble is around our Christian lives. Uh, Distress is a reference to deep, inward uh, anxiety. He's speaking frankly about the Christian life. Uh, Persecution, to be sure, but also famine and nakedness. Um, Aspects of Christian life that refer to our material lack. Uh, And then he caps it off by talking about a life of danger uh, and a sword. As all of these things, Paul assumes, are a part of a Christian life, external and internal. And not only this, Paul personalizes all of these things. Uh, John Calvin, as he looks at uh, how uh, Paul shares this in the Greek, he says, uh, look, all of these things are shared in such a personalized way that Paul's not joking. Uh, These things are a little too real. And then Paul quotes Psalm 42, verse 22. Do you know what Psalm 44, verse 22 says? Well, Paul has given it to you. Do you know what else Psalm 44 says? No, you don't. And the Roman Christians wouldn't either. It's actually a rather obscure psalm. They would have to go home and they'd have to look in their Bibles as well. But I'm going to tell you what happens uh, in verse 23 of Psalm 44. In this, uh, in this psalm, the psalmist is actually uh, crying out to God. And listen to what the psalmist says to God. Awake. How about that? Telling God to wake up. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our souls bow down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of what? Your steadfast love. This psalmist is desperate. They have only one thing, actually one person to place their hope in, and that is the steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus. But they want to know, God, what are you doing? Well, what he's doing is he's allowing those things to happen. And he's allowing those things to happen in your life as well. Please don't think that I assume that you have everything together as a Christian. I assume that things are not very together at all. I assume that your lives are very bumpy indeed. And when Paul goes to Psalm 44, he actually gives all of us permission to cry out to God in our desperation. Awake. Why are you sleeping? God is not sleeping. But sometimes he allows us to go through seasons of life where we feel as though he is sleeping. What do you say to people like that? They may be sitting right next to you. A terrible season of life. What do you say to them? You say to them what Paul says in verse 37. You are more than a conqueror. You're that aged soldier who has yet to see the fullness of your success in life and in pain. You are more than conquerors, however. Now, that's a present reality. That is who you are right now. You see, there's a past that secures our present, but there is also a present that guarantees our future. Paul says that today, right now, Christian, regardless of what you are going through, regardless of how you feel about yourself, he says you are not merely triumphant. He says that you are more than triumphant. He says you have not merely prevailed. He says that you have more than prevailed. Now, you may say to me this. You may say... Pastor, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through right now. All of this is easy to say, perhaps even easy to believe, but it is impossible to live. You just don't know what I'm going through. 
And I think that it's very fair for you to say that to me. But I have a retort. You don't know my life either, do you? You don't know what I'm going through. But more importantly than that, you've actually misunderstood what I have said to you, and you're misunderstanding what Paul says to you. You see, I'm not telling you, nor is Paul, that it is easy to say that you are triumphant. Nor am I saying that it is easy to believe that you are triumphant. In fact, I'm not saying that this is easy to say or easy to believe. I'm also not saying that it's hard to say and hard to believe. I am more than a conqueror. Seriously. It's not easy, but it's not hard. It's actually impossible. It is impossible for you to believe this about yourself. One can only be changed inwardly before they are able to believe that they are more than triumphant. The things that we say as Christians we're only able to say because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. The things that we believe as Christians we're only able to believe because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Who can say such things? Look what Paul says. Verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. Who can say or believe that? Well, Christian, you are able to say this because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That is how you are able to say that. And the security of that statement is not because of anything that you have done, nor because of anything that you presently feel, nor uh, because the circumstances that have been obstacles have now been pushed to the side. You are able to say this and believe this because of the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the present guarantees your future, but that present is the Holy Spirit working in you. And for some reason, it is to God's glory that he would allow us to suffer as we do, both by persecution and indwelling sin. And yet he would still say to us, you are more than conquerors. Amidst my failure and amidst success, there is something that we can count on as Christians. That great moment, five minutes after our days on earth are complete, And you will never doubt again when that happens. But right now, we rely upon the Holy Spirit to remind us of who we really are, despite how we really feel. You won't have to preach the gospel to yourself ever again when you are with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Instead, you will actually bask in the presence of the bearer of the gospel. But for now, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus and that it is unchangeable. And you need to preach the gospel to others that they would be reminded of who they are despite their struggles and despite the agony in their hearts. There's a past, a work of God that has secured our present, but there is a present, the work of the Holy Spirit, that guarantees our future. And no matter how difficult our life is, Externally or internally, the relationship that a Christian has with God, well, that rests entirely with the strength of God. 
And for that, we can be very thankful. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, would you be with us in our, in our hurts, in our agonies, in our struggles? We thank you for Paul, who reminds us of who we are. And we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that has graciously enabled us to say yes to the gospel. And while we are a new creation, have a new self, are a new person, we sometimes feel very dramatically, very intimately, the old self and the old person. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with assurance that we are not merely conquerors, but through Christ Jesus we are more than conquerors. We thank you, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.